0: And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And we are always so thankful to have Carl Erskine join our program. And, and Carl, it's it's remarkable, and I, I know it's, uh, it, it's rather early to be wishing you a happy birthday, but still nine days from now you're turning
1: 94 and, and – I can't be more thrilled. Uh, well, you know that's an amazing number that uh, I say it, but I don't, I don't hardly relate to it. But uh, yeah, 94 years and uh, been blessed in so many ways. Uh, my wife and I've been married 73 years and knew each other in high school, so we've had a life together, and uh, we're on sort of on lockdown at this retirement village in Anderson, Indiana, where Betty and I were both raised, born and raised. So we count our blessings every morning.
0: As we all should, and I hope all of you are safe and healthy out there during this COVID crisis. Uh, the numbers are spiking a little bit, so continue uh, protocol, continue following protocol, and we'll all get through this. Um, it's November, Carl. or Jesus, November, it's December, uh, and, and you know things things have been a little quiet in terms of this off season, but I thought this would be a good opportunity to get you on here to kind of uh, uh, go into some of that off season routine. And before we got on the show, I, uh, I mentioned because uh, I had remembered us talking about that lady that you used to rent from in Bay Ridge, and I thought since uh, um, you know sometimes you would be playing in the World Series, sometimes not, that things were a little tricky with coordinating with her that we could kind of start back in October with how your off-season would go.
1: Okay, fine. Well, Betty and I, I mentioned earlier, we were both born and raised in the town of Anderson, Indiana. Anderson's about 30 miles from Indianapolis, right in the middle of the state. So uh, Betty and I have been together since we were teenagers, Uh, married now 73 years, but uh, my baseball days always had an uh, anxiety at the start of the year, the season, because we would come out of spring training uh, to Brooklyn, and then we had to find a place to uh, live during the season. And it was always a, a difficult thing to do because uh, we played every day, and, uh, and then you had to follow a lead of somebody's that uh, thought there was a place over somewhere. So Duke Snyder had been my roommate for quite a few years, and he found a place in Bay Ridge. And through through Duke's uh, contacts, we made contact with Mrs. Coglin, Grace Coglin, was her name, a widow lady, and uh, she had a sister in Saratoga. And so when we got acquainted with her and arranged to uh, rent for the summer, she would go to her sister's in Saratoga. And if we'd happen to get in the series, which we did several times, then we had to extend our stay. And she would just stay at her sister's until we uh, were through with the season and the series. And it worked out just great for us. Uh, We were on Lafayette Walk, which is in Bay Ridge, and um, went back there a few years ago, just going back to look at the neighborhood. It still looked pretty much the same, and uh, my kids were raised there, so when we went back, of course, they were all grown up, but uh, look at the places I used to play in the street and uh, stick ball and so forth. So uh, we had a lot of good memories about uh, our years in Brooklyn and the neighborhood in Bay Ridge.
0: Yeah, and I
1: unfortunately have not been to Lafayette, walking yet. But
0: I certainly am going to make it a point to do so in the near future. And if you could go into once you got back to Anderson, Indiana, did you have a job that you had to do because
1: of of just uh, you know well,
0: the, the financial thing?
1: Yeah, it was it was typical. Major leaguers in the 1950s. Uh, I think Sports Illustrated did an article. Uh, one time on what players did in the off season, and almost a uh, copycat, uh, we all worked uh, for about fifty bucks a week. I, we worked in that off season time because uh, we'd saved a little money during the season, but we didn't want to use up our savings in the off season. So to buy the groceries, uh, I used to work at a lumber yard. Uh, I would de- deliver lumber, uh, frame houses, uh, roof houses. Uh, that's what I did in the off season, at fifty bucks a week. So, so that was how we survived in those days. Hello, Sam.
0: Hey, hello. Hey, Sor- hey, Sor- Sorry, Carl. We had uh, some technical difficulties for a second. Um, so yeah, so, so like you said, you would be working 50 hours, uh, 50 day, uh, $50 a week, excuse me. Um, so what are, what are some, was it like consistently you were doing just like, like farmhand work? What, what are some of the, the gigs that you would be doing?
1: Well, you know, I got, uh, I worked for a lumber yard and, uh, I delivered lumber, uh, helped frame houses, roof houses, uh, that was my uh, job, and uh, I always uh, enjoyed uh, being around the lumberyard. And so I would deliver lumber and do other odd jobs. But uh, roofing houses in the winter time—it uh, was always a challenge in Indiana because <laughs> sometimes we had pretty cold weather in the, in the off season, and uh, I'd be up on a house, uh, roofing a house, and um, had to be careful because. I did fall at one time, fell from the top of a uh, one-story house, and uh, was not injured at all, fortunately. <laughs> but it, oh wow, uh, that's great! Though work, working in the off season was typical of uh, pl- uh, players. Uh, as some of the players who lived in the New York area and uh, the New Jersey area, I remember, used to work for a corrugated box company. Uh, made uh, made cardboard boxes, and uh, that was their wintertime job. In Indiana, as I mentioned, I worked for a lumber yard, and uh, so I could work uh, fifty bucks a week and pay, buy the groceries in the off season. And uh, and most players uh, did work in the off season. Most most major leaguers did have an off season job, and. Uh, it was just the way it, the way it was, and the way we handled it.
0: Was there any particular day that you can remember that was just atrocious up on the roof in Indiana during the winter, or any particular stories from your time at the lumberyard? The lumberyard, excuse me.
1: <laughs> Sam, you've talked to me enough to know I've always got a story. <laughs>
0: but, <laughs> true, true.
1: But I do have a story. It was February. It was cold out. It was uh, below freezing. We were roofing a house out in the edge of uh, a little community called Chesterfield, which was close to my hometown, and we were uh, roofing. An old gentleman uh, and I were roofing a house, and uh, so during the course of uh, roofing the house, there was a point in time where you, you had to cut off the overhang uh, on the one-story house, and you did that with a handsaw, not a power saw, just with a handsaw. And so I chalked the line that was uh, going to be the line to, to saw. And I was standing on the edge of the roof and with this handsaw, uh, just a, a regular. Uh, that's the way the carpenters did it in those days. And uh, so I'm sawing this overhang, uh, and I lost my balance. And I fell actually head first off the end of the house, a one-story house. So I suppose I was 20 feet in the air. And uh, in, it instinctively, I can remember this as well as it just happened. Instinctively, when I fell head first, I hit the ground rolling. I hit it, and my instincts were just telling me, and I I rolled with as I hit the ground, I rolled and came up on my elbows, and immediately I began to feel myself where I broke something. I surely broke something falling off the house. Uh, I determined quickly that my arms were good, my legs were good. Uh, I'd actually survived the fall by the roll that I would just did instinctively. And so I was in good shape in those days. But that was the last day that I worked for the lumberyard. I went in and I said, you know, I'm going to straight trading in about two weeks. Here are the keys to the truck. Thank you for the job all winter. So that's what I did most most of my off-seasons. You know, when
0: thinking about these off-seasons and the fact that there's so much protection of these arms now, um and you know they 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 want you know they're they they do not want you playing a pick me up basketball game basically oh, um sure. was there ever was there any ever any of that even with the reserve clause like like did you guys get some grief for the fact that you had to work and and did you ever like turn it around and be like, we'll pay us better
1: well, it was a condition that existed for all all players all players were signed to one year contracts in those days even the managers, uh, no multi-year contracts ever existed in my day. So we worked, uh, we worked like on commission. You got paid this year on what you did last year, and, uh, and it was a one-year deal all the time. So the security was iffy in those days. Plus, uh, the Dodgers, for instance, had a huge minor league system, and if you faltered at the top, and you didn't produce, uh, you were quickly replaced out of that big farm system. Uh, So the pressure was on everybody, including Jackie, who had his own set of challenges. And uh, so thinking back at those days, how did we feel about Jackie and the stress he was under? Well, we were all under (laughs) the stress of one-year contracts and trying to stay in the big leagues. So uh, it was very competitive, but it brought the best out of everybody because if you didn't produce in the big leagues, you didn't stay there. You you were optioned out, traded, sold, maybe even released. But uh, that was the way it was. It was the same for everybody, and uh, the competition was fierce. But, uh, again, that, that brought the best out of all of us.
0: So once your playing career was over, you uh, started working at your local bank. If you could remind me what that bank was again.
1: Well, actually, uh, when I got out of baseball, uh, I had to figure out why am I going to make a living? And I ended up selling insurance and I got pretty good at, uh, having an agency and taking care of a lot of people I knew in the, my hometown area. But then, uh, I was invited to be on a board of a bank that just moved to town. And uh, so I was a director of a bank for a couple of years, and finally the owners called me in one day and invited me to come on board as an officer in a bank. And I was surprised at that, but they said, well, you live here, you know a lot of people, uh, you're ideal for an officer in of the bank. So I became an officer, and then I went through the chairs, and, uh, in four or five seasons, four or five years, uh, the owners called me in and said, uh, we're going to make you president of the bank because you're doing all the things that a president should do. You're active in the community. Uh, you're, uh, you're very active in, uh, civic affairs. And, uh, so you, we're going to make you president of the bank. <laughs> that, that was a shock and a, a surprise hmm. to me, but, uh. That's what happened to me in my uh, banking career. And so I was i was really an outside banker. I developed business outside and made calls on lots of businesses and helped get our bank off the ground, which became a very successful mm-hmm. bank.
0: So what do you think you took from your playing career into that new banking career?
1: Well, actually, you know, I, I got a little bit of a shock excuse me, Sam, Um, well, competition is out there. I mean, it's it's every place. So it was easy for me to tell who the uh, competitors were because they had it written out on their jersey uniform in the Giants or the Phillies. But when I got into the business world, uh, the competition was just as fierce, but you couldn't always tell who your friends were or your enemies were, (laughs) and so competition was, was pretty fierce, and it was a daily routine to be out, uh, checking any lead for good business, and so my forte with the bank, as I ended up being president for 11 years, was, uh, actually outside the bank, bringing in business, and, uh, uh, bringing in some quality business. So that was my experience as a banker. Uh, I didn't go to banking school, which most most bankers take a training course. I didn't do that. Uh, my forte was bringing in business, and uh, good business that, that was uh, solid, and uh, you make loans and c- collect the loans. And uh, so my... I was actually uh, an outdoor president of the bank because that's where I could develop business. Uh, and so my uh, my strength for the bank was knowing people and uh, having people uh, trust. And uh, so that, my contribution to the bank uh, sort of came naturally for me. And the titles, oh, the titles are always there, but... Uh, it's a team just like the Dodger team I pitched for. Uh, you had people all around you that were uh, skilled. And uh, so as president of the bank, the main thing for me was to get the best people I could find to be surrounded by. And uh, that's how uh, a good executive does operate. He depends a lot on a lot of people around him. And so that's how I was able to handle uh, being uh, president of bank for 11 years, and that was a great experience for me. Uh,
0: our friend Jim Denny, when I was lucky enough to uh, both meet you and take a tour of Anderson, Indiana, he uh, showed me the bank and and the surrounding areas, and, and there's a great statue outside there as well. There's a lot of great uh, dedication to you over there. It's clear what not only what you mean to the bank, but what you mean to the town.
1: Well, I uh, and there was the old song that says doing what comes naturally. Uh, that kind of, Betty and I, we didn't have a game plan, but when I came home from baseball, uh, I had to learn how to compete in business, and that uh, was a, a stressful experience in the beginning until you kind of get established. But uh, the bank was new in the area, so... It, it took a lot of legwork to, to promote the bank and to uh, develop the confidence of people to uh, to have confidence in this new bank. It was called First National Bank of Madison County, and uh, so it was a, always a, a challenge each year to go out on the street, develop business, bring it into the bank, uh, find good loans to be made to business. And uh, so I sort of learned on the job as president of the bank. Uh, but it came naturally to me because it was selling. And you had to develop people's uh, trust and uh, their confidence. And it took a while to do that. But that was, that was my uh, contribution to the bank. Uh, I knew a lot of people Uh, I'd been active in the community, and so uh, being president of the bank was uh, far beyond my imagination, but uh, I kind of fit the role, and uh, fortunately uh, was able to uh, be successful.
0: And for better or worse, what is the most eventful off-season that you can remember? And a follow-up to that is, are, is there any, like, promo that you remember doing, any, like, television show or magazine or, or anything where they would come to you or, or ask you to, to participate at any point?
1: Yes, I. Uh, the answer to that, two or three of those questions is yes. Uh, well, back home in Indiana, uh, making a living after the baseball days, uh, I tried not to lean on the baseball career. And uh, to to get make a sale or to make a uh, good contact, I tried not to lean on uh, the baseball career. And I was anxious to stand on my own to prove that I could uh, uh, make a living, could uh, develop another career. And so I did that in sales. And then the bank, uh, being a director of the bank, uh, gave me also an opportunity to sell the bank uh, to the community that I lived in. And so that was a good break for me, because I didn't have to travel away from home. I could do my job right in the general area of the uh, Anderson, Indiana, which was uh, the county seat for, uh, for Madison, Madison County. Uh, so my, my contribution to the bank was to make contacts, to bring people in. Uh, to find good loans, and uh, over time uh, it just the competition uh, was similar to that in baseball. I mean uh, nothing came easy. there was always uh, t- to get the next uh, account was like winning the next ball game and so it it kind of fit me real well and so my uh, on the job career as president of the bank. It kind of came natural for me.
0: So, what would you say is the equivalent in the banking world of throwing a nasty curveball?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the one thing about baseball, you knew who the enemy was because he was right across the front of their uniform. In banking, you didn't uh, you didn't always know where your competition was coming from, and uh, so it was a little it was just as competitive. But it was in a different, uh, different way. Uh, but it was a very uh, comparable kind of competition. You had to, you had to earn what you got, and uh, you had to work at it. So that was my job. I was uh, on the street a lot, uh, making calls on businesses, uh, inviting uh, good businesses to join us, to come in. Uh, for landing and the rest of it.
0: And cool question um, during that period, the eleven years. I mean, you know, a, a big part of it, obviously, the recognizability. Did like most people, you know, when you were coming to to get their information and in their account and 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 schmooze them, if you will, they knew who Carl Erskine was.
1: Well, I was I was known locally, yes. And uh, the one thing I tried to do, and I was really diligent about this. I tried not to bring the baseball into the picture. I wanted to, I wanted to earn my uh uh spurs and learn the art of uh, banking uh without leading on uh, look what I did in, in baseball.
0: Right. So so so, so to, I'm sorry to interrupt but did, um did you see it come up on on the customer's side? Did you see them uh, constantly want to kind of go back to it and you kind of try to try to navigate away?
1: Well, I'll tell you what it was interesting to me. I found out that some of my friends, they uh, were reluctant to give me an appointment because they didn't want to tell me no. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it, it was kind of a twist. Uh, I tried not to lean on the baseball experience at all and l- learn on my own how to make the sales and make the contacts and not lean on that baseball at all. So I did that. And uh, I, I think I overcame uh, that. I didn't want to talk baseball to people. I I wanted to talk business. And, uh, you know, I sort of steered my way through uh, avoiding as much as I could in my post-baseball career leaning on baseball at all and so I feel like I was able to kind of steer around that and uh, actually learn and become successful without uh, leaning on on the past well it, it
0: it's hard sometimes on this to avoid baseball talk, uh, and this is the way I'll segue over to your post-playing career, but still within baseball. Um, we had uh, um, the voice of the Indianapolis Indians, Howard Kelman, on the program on Monday, and he had been with us before, but it had been a while. Uh, and, of course, it came up uh, that you guys were, uh, were broadcast partners at some point. So if you could talk about broadcasting for the Indianapolis Indians and
1: working with Howard. True. Well, that was always uh, the step that uh, was all offered to uh, former players uh, to do some broadcasting. And so uh, you may remember the uh, sports guy named Jack Buck. Jack Buck was an a announcer for the Cardinals, and then he did also Game of the Week. And I worked with Jack Buck for a couple, three seasons uh, in broadcasting which is typical of former players, uh, some of them, who get a chance to be in the booth and uh, describe the game as a player right off the field. So I did get to do the game of the week a couple years with Jack Buck, and then uh, I did some work with TMOX out of St. Louis, which covered the Cardinals. Uh, I did some uh, broadcasting work with them. So... uh, that was a good postseason uh, experience that s- players, several players, get a chance to do, uh, and some of them were real good too. I always appreciated the guys that I could uh, listen to that were former players. After being in the booth myself, i re- recognized how difficult some things were and how they how it had to be handled. So. Uh, broadcasting was uh, kind of my stepping stone from uh, being a player to finally uh, graduating into a successful business person.
0: So what are some of the the most memorable games that you can remember? Is there any particular, maybe like a no
1: hit or a perfect game? Is there anything
0: that stands out to
1: you? Well, I can remember one game in Washington. uh, The Senators, they had a kind of a tail end team, and uh, Jack Buck uh, was a clever guy. He was he was very clever with uh, descriptions and uh, how, he, how he described the play and so forth. It was fun to work with Jack, but uh, the toughest games to broadcast are the games that have no real meaning. And if you're playing a team, uh, one of the teams is in last place going nowhere, Uh, to make it an interesting broadcast, it it was kind of a difficult thing to do. But uh, I always admired uh, Jack Buck because he had a great imagination and uh, he had an interesting way of describing. And then, uh, not only that, uh, he was very skilled in bringing me in to make comments. Uh, I always appreciated that Jack was kind of the leader of the, of the team here and uh, even though I was experienced as a player uh, he used uh, several approaches with me uh, to describe certain plays in the game and so it was fun working with Jack because uh, he had great imagination now of course his son is well known now in broadcasting several sports and uh, I think of uh, Jack Buck often when I'm listening to his son broadcast. So, so that was a good experience for me. And uh, KMOX in St. Louis offered me a chance to come to move there and uh, broadcast uh, with the Cardinals, but uh, it was not possible for me to, to move my family. So I had to mm-hmm. pass that one up.
0: Well, that's too bad. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just remarkable that uh, Howard. Who was right out of college, I believe, when he started, uh, has now been the voice of the Indianapolis Indians for about forty-six seasons, I believe. Uh, he unfortunately we lost the minor league season there, but if you can talk about broadcasting with Howard and the uh, you know the con the comparing and contrasting of of doing a minor league game versus a major league game.
1: Yeah, well. Of course, Howard was a major league broadcaster, even though he spent most of his life in uh, AAA or uh, uh, professional level baseball. And he also broadcast football and basketball. He was very versatile. But I, in working with Howard, I, I found out he was a walking encyclopedia. Uh, if I uh, hesitated about a certain year that uh, an event happened, uh, Howard would nail it right on the money. He, he had a he had a mind that was filled with stats and uh, and information going back uh, several years. And I always thought Howard would be an excellent uh, Major League broadcaster. But, you know, he loved his spot with AAA, And then he also lived in the Indianapolis area, and he did... Uh, High school football uh, he did basketball he was he was uh, broadly talented and uh so working with howard uh, I learned a lot because uh, he was so precise with his recollection of dates and and seasons that uh he he often corrected me and and, and I appreciated that he uh, he was the real thing and and he did know. He didn't know his business very well.
0: And, uh, you know, he was from Brooklyn, of course. And one of the things that we talked about was how there there really isn't any announcer out there with a Brooklyn or New York accent. Like it doesn't really like, you know, you, don't, you generally don't hear, Oh, well, there's a fly ball to right field, you know, on the right. air. Uh, but it kind of, with, with the southern vernacular and the southern accent, it kind of translates for the city folk. And that's what Red Barber was able to do so well. Uh, what 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 is it for you? Why is it that uh, you know Howard had to lose his accents versus other regions that that kind of fit radio better, if you will?
1: Well, I never really heard him comment much about about that. Um, you know, an announcer is distinguished by uh, the accent or the you know Red Barber had. Uh, He had kind of a, uh, uh, I'll use the word artistic, I don't know, but he had a way of describing things uh, that were more colorful uh, and appropriate. Uh, Vince Scully, uh, who came on board in 1950 at the Dodgers in Brooklyn, uh, he learned a lot from Red Barber because uh, Barber's description was always, uh, had a flair to it. It wasn't just uh, just the words, of fly ball to right field, oh, it's in the stands, whatever. Uh, he had a more colorful and poetic uh, way of expressing, and Scully picked that up, and that became his forte as well, that uh, he described the games in a more literary sense than just a baseball uh, the announcer. And I think that was what kept Vince Scully uh, popular so long. And, uh, in fact, uh, he does uh, he does some uh, uh, podcasts and some other things on TV now that they get him back in front of the mic. And uh, so I'm really glad uh, t- to know Vinny, who just had a birthday, he and I are about the same age. I think Vinny just turned 94, and he's still doing uh, some things on TV and the Internet.
0: Mm-hmm. And happy birthday to Vince Scully out there. And, of course, by the way, Carl, Howard gets his best to you and Betty. Um, oh, good. You know, it, it's been unfortunate you guys have not been able to see each other during this COVID uh, situation, I and mean, a lot of people out there are missing both their loved ones and their their uh, friends. So hopefully, uh, this thing can can wrap up soon. And
1: um, well, I will say, Howard he, Howard has been a friend. He's beyond uh, just a an acquaintance at a, uh, uh, and a and uh, a work with uh, on some Indian Indianapolis Indian schemes. Uh, Howard has been a good friend. He and his wife Robin. Uh, have often called for dinner uh, with Betty and me, and uh, so uh, Howard Howard really is a unique person and a very unique broadcaster. Uh, I I wish he'd take a shot at uh, uh, the major leagues because he certainly could qualify, but he's been happy with uh, his life at AAA and and doing uh, football, basketball, as well as uh, professional baseball so howard's very knowledgeable um he he always uh made sure i got the date right <laughs> if i thought it was in fifty 52 he'd say carl that was in 53 <laughs> so so he uh he's on top of it all the time
0: yeah it's it, it's The way I was able to hear him was actually he was broadcasting a major league game, uh, and he was able to do three Mets games in a row back in 2014. I believe it was in Atlanta, Uh, and that's how me and him uh, got hooked up uh, with uh, the podcast. So uh, yeah, it's it's great, you know. And I I think I've mentioned this before that I uh, an ex of mine uh, is from uh, Crawfordsville. So, I was able to take in much more of Indiana than I, I ever expected to. And I can attest that there certainly is a certain charm that maybe some of the rest of the country uh, it doesn't get to see because they, they've never been in, you know, they've never visited, and, and uh, they only hear what uh, some other people outside of Indiana have talked about. But when you go in there, it's, it's very, very cozy, very quaint. And, Something I definitely noticed, uh, other than beautiful, is it's certainly flat.
1: Well, yes, Indiana's a uh, uh, farm country for sure. And uh, one of the changes that the countryside has now is no fences anymore. Uh, the farmers quit putting up fences, and uh, and now the landscape is just beautiful to look across uh, literally miles of flat country uh, in Indiana. And, uh, you know, one sidelight, Sam, uh, Gladys Gooding was our organist at Ebbets Field. And uh, Gil Hodges was from Indiana, as well as uh, me being from Indiana. And any time that uh, either Gil or I were involved in the game, uh, Gladys Gooding would play back home in Indiana. And uh, I always uh, was proud of that because uh, I thought the most played song, in the 1950s and late 40s at Ebbets Field, besides the National Anthem, was back home in Indiana because when I come in to pitch or Hodges uh, hit a home run or did something on the field, uh, she always played uh, back home in Indiana. (laughs) So (laughs) I was always proud of that part of uh, the connection with me and, and my home state. So, of course, we know... Yourself,
0: and we know Gil, uh, but is there is there a a kind of an unsung hero of Indiana baseball that we don't uh, speak of much?
1: Well, of course, more lately, uh, later years, Tommy John was a very strong uh, left hand pitcher, and uh, of course, he's famous for his surgery of his elbow that has now been done hundreds of times by other pitchers. But uh, Tommy John had an outstanding career. I don't think he got the notice and the notoriety necessarily that his career deserved. But uh, he's famous for the surgery to the elbow with a tendon that uh, they can replace. And it's been over 500 surgeries uh, done on uh, pitcher's arms, uh, the Tommy John surgery, but uh, Tommy, really, they did, Indianapolis Star one time did a double page uh, on a Sunday edition of all the major leaguers from Indiana, and it was amazing how many uh, major league players have come over time uh, from Indiana, and uh, so I think the the history is all there about uh, how many players, uh, Hall of Famers, uh, came from Indiana. So I was always proud to be on that list, and uh, and uh, of course I was not, uh, I was not in the Hall of Fame, but uh, I had a, I had an identity with Indiana that I appreciated. And Roger, uh, excuse me, Roscoe McGowan was a writer for the uh, New York Times. And uh, uh, most of people in Brooklyn call me Oyskin, or short <laughs> Oysk for short. But, Roger, but uh, Roscoe McGowan, he dubbed me the gentleman from Indiana. I always uh, appreciated Roscoe, a very dignified writer. and uh, But I always appreciated the fact that he identified me as a uh, the gentleman from Indiana, so uh, when Gladys Good played uh, back home in Indiana that uh, that really tied me to the state, and I was really proud of that you know i I have uh, I do a
0: lot of reading of Roscoe McGowan in my research because of of the access to the New york Times archive and I guess my question is you know I was talking about the new york times and and reading a certain article to my mother. Uh, she mentioned how uh, living in Brooklyn, um, and she was living in Crown Heights at the time, uh, her father, you know, the New York Times was too hoity-toity. Uh, he would be reading the, the daily news on the uh, the subway going into town. So I, I guess my question for you, is, is, is that perception out there? Like, like when you're, you know, you, you mentioned Roscoe and how he was great and he was very eloquent. But is there kind of that bias, even outside of the tri-state area, which, of course, that you know, it, it, within the tri-state area, they, they had their hierarchies of the uh, newspapers as well?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember how many newspapers there were when I was playing in New York, but I don't know. There were six or seven. And uh, the one that stood out to me besides the Times and uh, some of the writers I knew uh, Roscoe McGowan and, uh, and a couple other writers uh, was Dick Young, who wrote for the uh, Daily News. Uh, it was a tabloid uh, paper, and it was uh, it was uh, a, a sensational uh, c- coverage from uh, the tabloid. And Dick Young was the writer who traveled with us over the years and was identified strongly as a loyal Brooklyn. A uh, writer, and uh, Dick Young was a, was a caustic kind of a personality, and uh, he could broadside you real easy <laughs> with the pen. But uh, he was a good, uh, loyal uh, champion of the the Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, so I, uh, even though you had to be uh, on your toes with Dick, uh, but uh, the, the writers were important to me. Uh, not not because of what they might write, because they always wrote uh, good or bad, and uh, I didn't always like the articles about me if I was having a rough stretch. But uh, one of the most loyal to the Brooklyn Dodgers was Dick Young, and uh, he he was famous in his day uh, because he was caustic. He he had a quick uh, response. He had a sharp uh, pen, and uh, uh, but and through all of that, he was a loyal, very loyal to the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers.
0: And you know, later on, became infamous for kind of inciting the uh, Tom Seaver trade.
1: Okay, that was later than my years. Yes, you're right. <laughs> but well, it, Dick it, well it's not, uh, Dick yeah, was not bashful. He, he took on anybody. Uh, when Bert Schotten replaced uh, Derocher uh, as manager of the Dodgers, uh, Bert was an older gentleman and uh, he and Dick Young got into a, a paper fight, uh, you might call it, uh, quoting uh, them each other uh, daily and it went on and on. And so uh, Dick Young uh, and, and Bert Schotten, I had this paper war that went on for I don't know three or four seasons, and <laughs> the, you can't beat the you can't beat the guy with the pen. <laughs> so Dick, so Dick was pretty tough on uh, on Bird for a couple three seasons.
0: Uh, it, it it's interesting thinking about Bird You know, uh, the first thing that I think about was how traditional he was of not wearing. The, uh, the uniform in the dugout and wearing a suit.
1: Well, there's a story behind that that has come out in recent years. But uh, when uh, DeRocher, uh, I forget exactly the circumstances, but uh, he got in trouble with the commissioner and uh, he got suspended. Uh, so Mr. Ricky, trying to replace uh, him went to shot But Schotton said, I can't manage because I promised my wife when I took off that uniform that I would never put it back on. And so, uh, (laughs) you know what happened? Ricky says, well, you don't have to wear a uniform to manage. You can manage in your civvies, but you can't go on the field. You can't go out and change a picture uh, because you're not in uniform. So uh, Schotton, in order to keep his promise to his wife uh, managed a few years i'm not sure how many but he managed a few years uh, with just his civvies on on the bench and he, of course he couldn't go on the field but he was permitted to be on the bench even though he was not in uniform now connie mack at the athletics also managed for years uh, in civvies and so those two were uh, two managers that could not go on the field because they they were in civvies, but that was uh, in order to keep his promise to his wife, Bert Schotten, <laughs> that he would not put the uniform on again. And so, Mr. Ricky says, "You don't have to wear the uniform. You, you can manage without it." And, and so that was that was his trademark. Uh, I played a couple of years uh, for uh, Bert Schotten. Uh, a fine gentleman. So, uh, a loaded question, but who is the best
0: manager you ever played for?
1: You know, I would pick uh, Charlie Dressen. uh, And I'd have to be careful because I played for four different managers, and they were all so different in their makeup, their personality. Uh, They're all solid baseball men, but but. I I picked Dressen, and I think the reason I picked Dressen is because he showed extra confidence in me. He often left me in a game when I thought and everybody else thought I probably should have been replaced, and he left me in the game, and I end up being the winning pitcher. Uh, that happened more than once with Dressen, so I appreciated uh, Charlie. Uh, he he would come to the mound and he'd say. Uh, well, they got a couple runs off of you, Carl, but they only hit one ball hard, and hmm. uh, he'd leave me in the game. So he left me in some games that I thought, surely, I should have been replaced, and I ended up being the winning pitcher. So, naturally, uh, I remember those times and uh, appreciated the dressing. Uh, the, the most outstanding one was the fifth game of the 1952 World Series. I gave up five runs in the fifth inning, and uh, any play, any pitcher in the World Series that gives up five runs in an inning is going to be hoisted. He's going to be replaced. Well, Dresden did not replace me. He left me in the game, and after the five-run inning, uh, the game went eleven innings, and I got the next. I got the 19 in a row after uh, the, the five-run inning. And I've won the ball game in, in 11, a World Series game in 11 inning. And Justin left me in all that time. So I, he really showed a lot of confidence in me. And uh, in doing so, uh, I've won a couple of games in the series.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, you know, and, and I can see exactly uh, what you're talking about with that, you know, and, and it, it's pretty remarkable. Like sometimes I, I, I don't realize that you only had four managers in your career, but of course that that completely makes sense and um, what, what a you know you won with Walt Al- Alston, who uh, infamously had like 20 something one year contracts in a row um, what what was it about him that was successful and what kind of put him behind Charlie
1: Dresden? Well, it was, their personalities were entirely different. They, they, their approach to the game uh, was entirely different. Uh, what the players uh, sometimes thought about Alston was that he wasn't aggressive enough. He didn't, uh, he didn't go out on the field and battle for a, a particular play or something because he didn't do that. Uh, Dressen did it. Uh, he was a fireball. Uh, and he was a good baseball man. dressing had a good baseball mind, uh, and uh, he he'd been a successful manager, a uh, su- successful coach. Uh, so I, uh, he kind of stands out with me because he had so much, so many times he expressed his confidence in me, and left me in a ball game which I may end up winning. Which I thought I should have probably been replaced. So I did have uh, great respect for Charlie. And uh, it's hard to pick the best manager because uh, Alston, in his own way, was a very solid uh, thinker. And he depended, he did something that most coaches, most managers in my day didn't do. He depended on his coaches, uh, Alston did. He would ask his coaches their advice. He would depend upon their input. And most managers in my day, they were the the last word. Uh, they didn't need any advice from anybody. They, they called all the shots, uh, including who pitched and who, who stayed in, who came out. Um, but Alston was a, a different cat. Uh, he actually relied on the input from his, his coaches. And uh, in some ways, I, I'm not sure I can say this right, in some ways Alston reflected that he was indecisive because he would often go to his coaches and ask their advice as well. I looked at that as a strength, that he depended on good baseball minds around him. And, uh, but some people in those days would read that as a weakness. that He couldn't make up his own mind. Uh, and that was a minor thing with Alston because he coached, as you mentioned, 24 consecutive years on one-year contracts, which all players in those days and all managers were on one-year contracts. So Alston was uh, a Hall of Fame manager, uh, he, he was a Ricky disciple too. Uh, people might forget that, but uh, Branch Rickey talked him into coming out of a teaching profession and coaching the minor leagues, and then Olson himself became a Hall of Fame manager. So uh, the the story behind the story uh, was that uh, Mr. Rickey saw baseball things about. Alston that uh, made him believe that he could be a Hall of Fame manager, which he became.
0: There you go. Exactly. This is
1: the Bedford and Southern podcast. You have been listening
0: to the man, the myth, the legend, Carl Erskine of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Carl, I'll end with this. Uh, You know, we were talking about your managers. Let's uh, talk about your battery mates. Um, I have a question out there from, uh, the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, who you've spoken to, Mike LeColon, um, he he is wondering whether you knew about uh, something that Roy Campanella sponsored um, regarding uh, the the Negro Leagues that were still going on at the end of the uh, the 50s, but obviously uh, it was tapering off at that point. But uh, they play the the Brooklyn Stars of 1959 that Roy Campanella sponsored. And, of course, at this point, he had unfortunately had that terrible accident that uh, left him paralyzed for the rest of his career uh, life. Um, he, the, the Brooklyn Stars of 1959, they played four doubleheaders at Ebbets Field against Negro American League teams. Uh, were you aware
1: of this at the time? Um,
0: do, you, do you remember anything about this?
1: No, you're right. I do not remember much about that. The Negro League at that time, of course, with Jackie breaking the barrier, uh, that it, it impacted the, the the Negro League until it finally uh, it finally had to uh, call it quits. But uh, no, and I was not particularly aware of, of the games that you're talking about at Ebbets Field. No, I was not much aware of that. Yeah, he's doing a lot of research
0: right now on the Negro Leagues uh, in light of the the Negro National League 100th anniversary. Which was formed in 1920, of course. So um, we're, you know, I believe we're going to be doing another Negro League episode next week with um, uh, Negro League historian Phil Dixon, who we've had uh, on here plenty of times. So it, 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 you know, do you sometimes think about the fact that it's, it's in in considering you were right there in the middle of it all in terms of the integration aspect? um, It's such a, a a a side of history that does not have as much material. And and it takes a lot for these historians to really uncover it, uh, you know, countering the way it's pretty easy to uncover the Major League Baseball history.
1: Well, you know, it's a matter of culture. Uh, The culture of the times when I was a kid growing up was that America was black and white. There was no distin- there was no trouble uh, anybody having any trouble with the distinction that uh, whites were uh, on this side and uh, blacks had their place and that's the way it was and I grew up in that atmosphere where uh, blacks were basically second class citizens in terms of uh, privileges where they went who uh, things were marked black and white and uh, that's uh, That was my childhood growing up, and uh, I always marveled that my best buddy was a boy named Johnny Wilson. He was a black kid, and uh, we grew up together from 10 years old on, and then uh, it was like a, a precursor, a, a, pre, uh, a, a predestined experience growing up with Johnny Wilson, because then I played with Jackie for nine seasons. And uh, he he marveled at me by saying, "How how is it that you aren't caught up in this black and white thing?" And I said, "Well, I never thought about it that way. Uh, my buddy Johnny Wilson was a black kid. Uh, he and I were as good of friends as you could ever be. And so my experience with Jackie was uh, very good, and uh, never had any kind of." A, Uh, of a hint of uh, racism Uh, i just jackie was just a first class person and uh, it was easy to get to know him and it was easy to play with him uh, for nine seasons so uh, that was a good experience for me to grow up with johnny wilson and then play nine nine season with jackie
0: Carl, uh, it is always such a wonderful experience talking with you about all of this stuff. And as always, you know, let's, let's keep these conversations going and happy early birthday.
1: Well, thank you. You know, it's a pleasure to recall things. Uh, in my mind, sometimes I wake up and think, did that really happen? Did I really play with that great team in Brooklyn and uh, made the move to L.A.? I got to be a transition player Uh, All those things were uh, so remarkable for a skinny kid uh, from Anderson, Indiana, (laughs) that I got that little baseball, picked me right out of the uh, neighborhood and sent me uh, on the big stage. I've always been grateful for that. And we are grateful for you. Thanks again, Carl. You bet Sam,
0: thank you, buddy. Good luck. And thank you thank you all uh, out there for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We will be back next week. Take care.